Father, thank you for our time again tonight that we have the freedom in this country to gather together uh, without uh, harassment, uh, without government interference, uh, a freedom that uh, believers in many places do not share tonight. And we're thankful for the special grace that you've given us for that privilege. And we ask that your Holy Spirit now teach our hearts from the text of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. We have a, a new diagram in this section um, that I want to link to the diagram that we show all the time um, on um, good and evil. Remember back in the, when we did this diagram here where we have <clears throat> the good and the evil coexisting for, for a period. Get some better focus. We have this period in here, and in the Christian view, that splits at this point of the judgment. So that at that point, you have God dividing the good from the evil permanently, the permanent barrier that sits in there. So that's the judgment, and that's the fall, and that's the creation. So you have it good, then you have it mixed, and then you have it separated. Well, on page um, figure 8 of the notes, um, page 113, I've tried to picture a thing that we'll, we'll work through tonight in more detail, but I just want to introduce it so you'll know where we're, where we're moving. But if you, there's, after I got diagramming this, I got to thinking that if you think of this in terms of a graph, what I failed to do was put the y-axis on the graph, the vertical y-axis. And if you want to draw that in, uh, then on that y-axis, um, the point where I have creation, that circle, would be zero. And anything under zero, downward, would be minus righteousness. And everything above that zero at creation would be positive righteousness. So that's what what I'm trying to indicate by that step function there. So you start out with creation, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, with just the, the righteousness of creation, but no righteousness as a result of obedience under test. So it starts out as zero. Then you have the fall, and you go into unrighteousness. And then you have uh, dwelling in unrighteousness, over until the resurrection, and then the resurrection moves you all the way up to positive righteousness. Just like justification, remember, justification is not just as if I'd never sinned. It's more than that. It's imputed righteousness added onto forgiveness. So it goes above. So you don't go back to zero. You go positive. And the resurrection, what that resurrection does when it splits is two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto eternal life and there's a resurrection unto damnation. And at that point, you have the two values and those two values correspond to this good and this evil in this diagram. So that's what's happening here. The resurrection administers physically the split. That's the way the split happens in history. 
it's administered spiritually at regeneration, but physically, as far as the body, as far as nature goes, it's administered right at that point, and then you, you bifurcate. Now, up on the top of that diagram, there's two periods of history, and I'm using, and there may be some quibble with how I'm using these words here, but uh, I've chosen to adapt the convention that everything this side of resurrection is mortal history. So I'm using that vocabulary word to refer to everything up to resurrection. After resurrection, everything is immortal history. Now, you can quibble with it because <clears throat> immortal means not subject to death, but the resurrection unto damnation is permanent death. So there's a little bit of a problem with that use of that word. But I think that word mirrors how it's used in 1 Corinthians. So we just kind of stick with that. So mortal history means the period of time when you can fall. The period of time when sin is possible and salvation is possible. Mortality means it's changeable. Repentance is possible. When you go across the barrier and you, you get into immortal history, there's no repentance. There's no grace. The day of grace is ended. That's what the horror of resurrection is. And I'm just trying to show that because it's Easter and all that. And I go back to the fact that if you look at how resurrection is pictured in Scripture, it's not just good news. It's not just a sweet message of hope. It's a message of terror. If you talk about you know, which resurrection you're talking about. Depends. But both of them uh, create this situation that we've seen over and over where God finally separates. Resurrection, the final say in that sequence of events. So that's the vocabulary. And uh, what I want to do now is go, if you go back in the notes um, to page 111, we're going to uh, go back to the theme that we ran into in the very, very first of the Bible, and that was creation. And you'll remember that to the events of creation and fall and the flood, we associated three great doctrines. And of creation, we associated the doctrines of God, man, and nature. And that's what we're going to do now at the end of history, because the resurrection basically is the end, the end point, and we have God, man, and nature again. And so tonight, what we're doing, we're simply working through those three doctrines all over again. But from the standpoint of the end of history instead of the standpoint of the beginning of history. And at the end of history, each one of these uh, reaches a state. So we want to talk about that state that is reached in the, in the eternal condition. That's why in the notes, uh, we covered some of those verses last time, on page 111, God's glorification. That's what we're talking about here. The first of those three. God, man, and nature. So we're talking about God being glorified. And I give you the text there uh, of Revelation 4 and 5 because that shows what we mean when we say God is glorified. It means that there is historical evidence of all of his good works to the point where it's impossible not to accord him praise. So, worthy art thou, O Lord our God, is not just an emotional response to feel good. 
worthy at this point is a declaration of a concluding sequence of thought that says, I have contemplated all of the sequence of works down through history, and I have to conclude, worthy is the Lamb. Now, in our Christian life today, we can't truly say that with all of our heart, because there are areas that we've talked about here. Remember, it goes back to this diagram, the diagram of the, of the mix. When we live inside here, and so there are mysteries left for us. There's this Job situation. Why do these things happen? And we know that our God is good because he's shown it other ways, but we, we don't get it all together. And so we see fragments and pieces of the big picture. And we take the big picture by faith in his character. That's where we get our confidence. The, that's the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4 says. What does it mean to pass all understanding? It means we can't reason to it. That we can't linearly reason to peace in, this, in the ordinary sense of the word. We can't draw a proof and say we get this. What we can do is we can reason to peace in another way. And that is we see what God has done. We jump over to conclude he has this certain character. And then because we've concluded he has a certain character, we trust that in the area we can't see, we can't see all how the details fit, it's got to be okay. And we all have that experience in the Christian life. So, so in here, we can say he's worthy in anticipation of the end, but the worthy that's sung at the end of history is a real testimony to the fact that the pieces fit together now. Now we see he is worthy. So when we say God is glorified, we're looking forward in time to where some of these mysteries, there will always be some mysteries because he's incomprehensible, but the, the, the struggle we have now is resolved. And so he's glorified. And what I've tried to indicate, he's glorified in two ways. Uh, he's glorified in sequence of time. And I gave you a verse on page 111. Uh, I think we went over this last time, didn't we? Genesis 4, the first time men worshipped. Genesis 4, 6. And then you come on the top of page 4, uh, 112, and you see the next verse I cite is Exodus chapter 6, verse 3. What's Exodus chapter 6, verse 3? It's, by my name Yahweh I was not known to Abraham. Well, what does that mean? Abraham, <laughs> Yahweh occurs in the text. What do you mean it wasn't known? Well, it wasn't appreciated. Used the word, but they didn't have they didn't realize that, oh, that's what the word means. It's the God who comes alongside Israel while they're in Egypt suffering, the burning bush picture of God. That God. He is with them in the middle of the crucible of suffering. Now I know what the word Yahweh means. So Exodus six three is where it says, by my the fathers didn't know me by that name. There you have this glorification of God in time. Uh, let's see what I do with my slide here. Oh, here it is. Um, here's the sequence. Here's Abraham in 2000. And here's the Exodus, 1400. And Abraham's here and Moses is here. You've got six centuries separating those guys. The name of God is used throughout. 
here, 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 here. Everybody's using his name. But it wasn't until here where he is really known as Yahweh. Now, what's that mean? It means after he did the Exodus and got involved in that work, now, oh, now I see more about who our God is. So, we have a progression. This is progressive revelation. And because it's progressive revelation, it means that we can say history is designed pedagogically. History is designed to be pedagogical. That is, it's designed to teach lessons sequentially. One, two, three, four. My, one of my sons, of course, he's going through his first year of teaching this particular age group. And uh, all fall, uh, he spent hours and hours at night because every day, in every course, he had to design a lesson plan and had to have it approved and go through all the ritual of the bureaucracy and, and go through this every single night besides grading papers and do everything else. And it's awful for the first-year teacher because you don't, have any, you don't have any lesson plan. You've got to work that through. And in the second year, you can cruise a little bit because now you, at least you went through this material once before and you know what part of it bombed out and what part was great and you can adjust. But the work becomes a little easier. But the whole idea is what takes the time is the sequence. Do I teach them this first or do I teach them that first? If I teach them this way, will they understand that? If I start over here, will they understand this? So God did the same thing for us in history. That's why it's so important to think of your Bible chronologically. And when you read a passage of Scripture, learn to read it. When, when in the sequence of the curriculum did this happen? If you'll always remember that, is whatever page of scripture you read, place it in the sequence of Revelation. And it'll, it'll help you and not get fouled up by thinking that way. And just remember, when you, we, go, we go to the book of Revelation, <laughs> that's at the end. Is it hard to read? You bet. Why is it hard to read? Because it presumes you read the rest of the Bible. And you're never going to get very far in those hard passages. They're hard enough, but you're never going to even start learning them until we understand the Old Testament lessons that we were supposed to learn before we got there. That's like walking into a course late in the semester. And you know, it's all French to you on the board. So that's the idea of the scriptures. So that's what we mean God is glorified sequentially in time. And another verse that I gave you there is Ephesians 3.10, where the angels are learning something through the church age that they never learned before. Well, what on earth can they learn from us? Maybe how not to do it. But whatever, it's something about the church that angels are learning, not about us, about God, through us. So even angels experience this pedagogically progressive revelation. Same thing. Okay, now, God is also glorified, not just in time, but the important thing to be, think of is that in the final analysis, when we come down to this sequence at the end, uh, I've always indicated the good and the evil as red and black. But what you want to remember is that when we get down to this glorification, at the end, God is glorified in the black area as well as the red area. So God is glorified throughout all space. 
all the space of his creation, in hell and in heaven, he is glorified. Which tips us off to the fact that glorification is not necessarily good news either. <clears throat> if the whole idea of heaven and hell is that in hell or the lake of fire, you have a creaturely existence that is perpetually and permanently doomed to experience the wrath of God by their own choice. It's a fearful thing to think about. And that's the tremendous and awesome responsibility that the Bible places on human freedom. It's so ironic that the unbelievers are always yak-yakking about, well, we don't like a sovereign God because that curtails human freedom. Then we present a gospel of the human freedom that results in damnation for the wrong decision. Now I don't want that choice. That's, you know, uh, God shouldn't have let me do that. <laughs> you wanted freedom, hey? So, whatever God does, he's always going to be criticized. So, at this point, he is, just, he is glorified to those who are in heaven, and he's glorified to those who are in hell. So, God is glorified in space. And that's the pa passage that we all read in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, which is really taken out of Isaiah 45. That's where it first shows up historically. God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of, in Philippians it says Jesus, in Isaiah it says Yahweh. So excuse me, Jehovah's Witnesses, you who, this is saying that Jesus is Jehovah, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, all the spatial realms. So justification occurs throughout, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It doesn't mean <clears throat> that everybody willingly confesses. It's just saying that everybody will confess. Some willingly, some unwillingly, but all will confess. In other words, God's glory saturates heaven and hell. Who has the last say? God does. And then we can turn, if you will, to Revelation 21, which is the last picture we have in history. And it's highly uh, symbolic in the sense that it's, it's, you've got to think about what is being presented. But there are, there's enough about it to whet our curiosity, not enough about it to satisfy it. But you'll notice the words that are used here. In verse 1 of Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. See, that answers to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the Bible concludes with a new heavens and a new earth, meaning what we would translate today, a new universe. So just as in that tomb, and we had discussions in the Q&A the last two or three times we met together about, gee, what does the resurrection body look like? And we always say, well, let's go back to the tomb. And you walk in the tomb, and there's Jesus' clothes, but there's no bones. There's no, no flesh left. All of it's gone, just his clothes there. And just his garment that he was wrapped in, actually. But there's no pieces of his mortal body left there. Which means that his resurrection body must have transformed out of the debris of his mortal body. 
just like a butterfly out of a larva, just like a tree out of an acorn, the same kind of thing. So, in the analogy, in verse 1 here, where the new heavens and new earth come from? New heavens and the earth come from the debris of the old universe. So, obviously, there's a conflagration of the universe at the end time. And the universe, with all due respect to Carl Sagan, does not die a cold death. It dies a hot one. And it's, and it's simply dissolved, as Peter said. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I've no, I, know, I don't know why there's no sea. I kind of like to see myself. Um, but I think there's some theology about what the sea refers to there. I saw the, new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven. I heard a loud voice. And in verse 3... You have that theme of the scripture, the Emmanuel theme. What is Emmanuel again? M with Manu. Emmanuel with L. L is God. Emmanuel with us. And that's verse 3. The theme of Emmanuel is that the home and the seat of the location of the throne of God is with the human race. It's not with a set of Martians. It's not some weird creature out of Star Wars on some distant galaxy far, far away. The throne of God is this planet. And it is with the human race. And that's what verse 3 means. That is the geocentric, theocentric view of the universe that the Bible presents. Very offensive to people. A lot of people just bristle. When you talk about, well, I don't think the earth is the center of the universe. That's kind of arrogant. Well, actually, it isn't arrogant. What's arrogant is to hope that he's not going to be here so I can do what I want to and be not held responsible. That's what's arrogant. Verse 3 is that the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, they shall be his people, and God himself shall uh, be among them. And you notice it doesn't say in verse 3, among the Jews. It's universal language that's used in Revelation 21. It's among men, among all men. See, the Israel-Gentile distinction is gone here. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no longer any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's the Christian answer to suffering. That goes back to our graph that we've shown over and over that only Christianity has an answer. Again, look at the bottom part. What If you don't accept the Bible and you're trying to, trying to invent your own religion or philosophy, try learning a lesson from the thousands of people that have gone before you who have tried to develop their own philosophies and religions. And isn't it interesting, they all come out with the same answer that the good and the evil, the pain and the suffering go on and on and on and on and there's never any relief. So, the Bible in verse 4 clearly says this new heavens and this new universe, there is relief. It is a total restructuring. But you notice you can't get to verse 4 until you go through verse 1. To get to the state of verse 4 takes more than a government program. It takes more than the church evangelizing, if I might add. It takes more than all the missions put together in the world. 
It takes more than the dreams of the most uh, totalitarian social reformer. You can't get to verse 4 until you pass through verse 1. And there's a reason for that. Because in verse 4, when you talk about the tears in the eyes, the death, the crying, and the pain, if you think biblically, what do you say caused it? Go back to the cause. It wasn't caused by failure of a government program. It was caused by sin against Almighty God. And it had catastrophic repercussions. The damage sunk all the way down into the structure of our DNA in our bodies. It sunk all the way into the DNA of the plants, the animals. It sunk into the physics of the earth. It sunk into the physics of the universe. So something that is that widespread and those kind of consequences aren't going to be removed by a simple religious act or a series of acts or government programs or all the political promises on earth. Not going to do it. Can't do it. Beyond control. Now in verse 5, I am making all things new. And who is saying that? He who sits on the throne. Is it man that calls the final whistle here? See, that's what's so interesting about Scripture. Who sets off history? In the beginning, I have created all things. In the end, I make all things new. So from the beginning to the end, it is always the sovereign creator God who does it, not man. Man has no part in this. Absolutely no part. Now, Verse 8 depicts the eternal separation. For the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That means there's something beyond the first death, which we all experience. That's the second death, and that's the resurrection of the damnation. Now, if you look further down the chapter, it describes the city... And then it makes an interesting point. Verse 23. And I believe this to be literal. I don't think this is just symbolic here. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illuminated it and its lamp is the lamp. That whatever the glory of God is, it's light. It takes the form of light. And... We, we unconsciously all know that because what is the synonym for evil? Darkness. Walk in the light. Why do we say that? Where did that metaphor come from? Because in our hearts, the syntactical structure uh, that we use around the words light and darkness are structured by God's design to reflect His, his glory. Now, you remember, back in Genesis 1, there was a strange thing that gets people bent out of shape about light. Remember in Genesis 1, it talks about um, there was light, uh, there was dark, uh, day, and there was light, and there was darkness, and that was day one. There was uh, darkness and light, day two, darkness and light, day three, and then God created the heavens and the stars, day four. And skeptics always jumped on that and said, ah, see? Now, that shows you how silly the Bible is. 
I mean, how can you have an alternating 24-hour cycle of light and darkness without the sun and the earth rotating? Well, the stunning answer to that dilemma from the text of Genesis is that the sequence of light and darkness, that 24-hour periodicity, is more fundamental than terrestrial motion or solar positioning. The 24-hour cycling it was embedded into the very structure of the universe. The universe glowed for 24 hours, uh, for 12, and then got dark for 12. There was a, there is a 24-hour periodicity, independently of the planets, independently of the sun, independently of the earth. All the sun does, and the earth, and its and the relative motions, they just are clocks that clock that prior periodicity. They were designed that way to capture the 24-hour cycle, but that's all. They don't create it. It was there before. Now, that alternating light and darkness goes back to mortality. That's the mortal history. It's not necessarily a sign of a big catastrophe in Genesis 1-2. That business of light and darkness is the fact that the first universe that God created in Genesis 1 is subject to sin and collapse. It is not a perpetual light there. And the 24-hour day is to remind us that we have a choice all throughout mortal history. We have the day and we have the night. And we can be creatures of the day or we can be creatures of the night. Every 24 hours he reminds us of repentance. Every 24 hours we're reminded that we live in mortal history. Just like every time we eat meat from the Noahic Covenant, we know that an animal had to die in order that we may live. If you start thinking in these categories, then all around you, you see revelation going on. It's just that we are so schooled in secularist thinking, we have learned all our astronomy, all our biology, all our subjects in a totally foreign frame of reference. So it's hard for us, it takes us years as Christians now, to dig out from all the junk that we've learned to get back to see what a peasant would have known in 600 B.C. from the text of the scriptures. And we think we're more advanced. So, God's glorification in space, and God's glorification in time, and God's glorification in the final state of affairs. Now, Revelation chapter 22, <clears throat> verse 4, going on further, has a very important observation about this universe. It says... Uh, Revelation 22, or 22.3, I mean, excuse me, it shouldn't be 22.4. It says, there shall no longer be any curse. What's that talking about? Genesis 3. There shall no longer be any curse. Again, what is that saying? Separation of good and evil is a permanent thing. There's no, I mean, no more falls. Had enough of that. The, the temporal mortal nature of the universe, its um, vulnerability is taken away. Never again in all of our lives, and we're all here tonight as human beings made in God's image, we're going to live billions and billions of years. The lifespan that you now have experienced and I experience will be looked upon as, you know, our childhood. Back in our childhood, when we lived in the dark world, this is how it was. And it's almost inconceivable to think that we're going to live forever and ever in a totally different universe. It's going to look like Revelation 21, 22. But that's our ultimate home. That's what we're designed to be to do. 
Okay, now we move from the glorification of God now to the glorification of man. And let's turn to uh, John chapter 5, verse 27. This is a verse that we covered last time um, and several other times because I want you to um, remember this, particularly around Easter, and not think of resurrection just in, in it's a nice little thing to think about, great idea, progress, and all that good stuff. In John chapter 5, um, verse 27, here's the authority that is passed to the Son. Now, there's a lesson in all this, and when you see these things, it's so obvious who wrote the Bible, because it's so consistent. God is not a God of confusion. And when He writes scripture and designs history, it has a neat pattern to it. Let's look at this sentence. John 5:27. And he gave him authority. Let's just write that out and look at it in a minute. He gave him authority. Okay. Subject of the sentence. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In context, it's God the Father. So, we say, okay, first person of the Trinity. He. He gave him, who's him, the Son, authority. Now, let's go a little deeper. If God gave the Son authority to execute judgment... Why did he do so? The sentence continues. Because the son is the son of man, or the son of Adam. So somehow this authority and this giving gave authority is linked to the fact that the son is God and man. That he wasn't given the authority until he was incarnated. The bare, naked, so to speak, second person of the Trinity, the angel of Jehovah, as he occurs in the Old Testament, he wasn't given authority to judge until he took upon himself humanity. Now that raises a question. Why did God hold up this transfer of authority from the first to the second person until the second person sort of was ready for it? What was the readiness business? That he became a man and dwelt among us and learned obedience. Why did he have to... Well, but, but wait a minute. The son is perfect righteousness. He's already righteous. But the executor, the executor, this authority here is authority to execute judgment on whom? Creatures. And as the Son executes this authority, He acts as a man. Because He is the Son of Man. Now what does that tell you? Do you, any of you remember back in Genesis 1, after, or as God was making man, what did He say man had? Have dominion. Over, all the, over the things that I have made. So who is the executor of authority in the universe? 
it's who's the head creature? Man is. Man is the head creature. So when you get down to the end, and there has to be an authority of judgment executed, it isn't done by an angel. It's not done by an animal. It's not done by a creature in a galaxy far, far away. It is done by a member of the human race who carries the genetic structure of Adam in him. Man finally has dominion. Some men don't. Some men do because there's, you have to be in Christ in this new human race, but it still is a human race. It's not a divine race. It's not an angelic race. It's a human race. So the Father gave authority to judge creatures to the one creature who was the creature judger. And he's a creature judger because he's a member of the human race. And it goes back to the dominion in Genesis 1. See, it all fits. Genesis 1 is so important. Remember we studied it years ago? It's so important because it sets up the categories that are never violated for the rest of the scriptures. The entire plan of salvation comes out of those categories in Genesis. Screw those up and you might as well just collapse the rest of the Bible. People get all kinds of fuzzy feelings in Genesis 1 to 11 are really are sad people. Because they don't realize that when you fuzzy up what's going on back there, you eliminate stuff like this. What kind of insight does this give you if you don't go back to Genesis and the role of man? So, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, he is the God-Man Savior, and we have explored in this, the last year and this year the four, the four areas of the life of Christ. We said his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And as we explored each one of these four areas in Christ's life, we said, what was the issue on the birth of Christ? Why is the virgin birth not just a little trivial touchstone? It's because it's the unification of God and man. A strange thing that happens. So the virgin birth is very important. And unbelief reveals its unbelief by looking at the virgin birth and saying the guy is a bastard. Jesus is illegitimate. It has to because it tries to encompass, remember, strategic envelopment? It's trying to encompass the Lord Jesus inside a framework of unbelief. It can't accept the fact that this is incarnation. You're crazy. It can't be incarnation. It doesn't happen in the universe. Well, it did happen because the universe isn't the way you thought it was. And then his life, and what we say the issue of his life was, that he is the ultimate revelation of God. Because he is pure, because he is obedient, he reveals God as no other creature reveals God. And what do we say about the death of Christ? He paid the price. There's God's grace. So he could be the executor of the judgment, but he's also the payer of the penalty. And then the resurrection is he's reached the end of the track and he's successful. He's now starting the new universe. So, John 5.27 is the giving of authority to execute judgment. He's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. Not some, not just Christians. All who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Not just Christians. All will hear and all will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's the final 
act, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ in history. This is this person now that walked around in Palestine. That's his position at the end of the universe, at the end of history. Okay. Now, man is glorified. Man is glorified here in what sense? How does Jesus glorify man? Because as the Son of Man, He fulfills the destiny of man. And by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity, we see what men ought to be like. They ought to be like that the way God designed them to be. And where can we find a model to find out what men like to be? The Lord Jesus Christ. There was an interesting experience by some university students I knew years ago. Um, the Christians at this particular place, uh, this, this campus, uh, had a neat deal because uh, they had some real anti-Christian professors. But what the Christian students did is they got together and scoped these guys out. And it was because this is what the unbelievers do with the Christians. You know, the favorite trick in a university course is to, if the professor really wants to smoke out the Christians, he'll say some little thing or he'll get a discussion going. And then he's going around and saying, oh, yeah, 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 okay, you're a Christian. I can tell you're a Christian. And then he goes after him the rest of the semester. I watched it. I've been in courses where that happened. Well, the Christians do the same thing. They figured out, okay, two can play that one. So they talked to all the students who took the guy's course the semester before find out his notes, find out his vulnerabilities, find out how he smokes them out, and then avoid them. When he, when he tries to bait, they don't bite. So now he doesn't know who's a Christian or not because they're not coming out this time. Well, what they love to do is one course, I forgot what the, what the subject of this one was, but they had a discussion about who would make the greatest leader. The teacher got on the board and started writing all these characteristics of, the, of what would be the ideal social leader, political leader. So they wrote down, um, he had to be brilliant, he had to know his, his business, but he also, in order to be leader, he had to have lived in the poor areas, he had to share the hurts of the people, and so this started going on down and down and down, and you can see where I'm leading with this, that here's a class of unbelievers with an unbelieving professor trying desperately because they're all made in God's image. They may deny it. You know, I came from monkeys, gave up my bananas and jumped out of the trees. But nevertheless, I'm not really a monkey. I'm a real person made in God's image. So even though if I act like a monkey, I think like a person made in God's image from time to time. And at this time, sure enough, all these things are written on the blackboard. So one girl sitting in the back of the room she was one of the more mature Christians in the area, and, and she saved up because she didn't fly her flag because this guy didn't shoot. But he couldn't shoot in this particular semester because they weren't flying flags. Well, he walked into this one. He had about 20 or 30 characteristics on this blackboard in front of about 100 of these students. So she's sitting there in the back. She said, okay, I got you this time. So he's asking for who do you think uh, does this remind you of anybody? Who does this? Uh, well, do we know a leader? You know, Martin Luther King or George Washington or you know Julius Caesar. She so raises her hand in the background. I think it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Psst. Quiet. 
wasn't you could hear a pin drop. And I'm sure you've all been in those situations. When, I mean, just from the back of the room, with all her voice, she said that. And it, they, the other kids in the room say, it was just like somebody turned off all the volume, pulled the plug. For a, for a stunned instant, that entire lecture hall couldn't recover. The professor didn't know what to say up there because he, he walked into it. Because everybody in the room, when they finally saw these characteristics, said, of course, that fits. And they walked out. And it was the end of the, that particular end of the lesson that day. Christians were jubilant. Ha, ha, ha. That was a great day <laughs> in that course. But the point of it all was that here, unconsciously, the world seeks the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one who is the ideal model. And what's so interesting about this case where he has given authority is that this is not an abstraction. See, the professor was here thinking in terms of an ideal leader. You know, George Washington, all these other guys, well, they had their faults, and they, they, they fit 15 out of the 32 features, but then there was a big gaps and so on. But, you know, no one person could possibly fit all these things. Well, the Christian has, yes, there is one person that fits all these things. See? So there's something concrete, and that's what we mean by man is glorified. He is glorified because of the work of Christ. Not only is Christ the model, but Christ in his treatment and nurture of believers is growing for the future creatures who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who will rule as man was designed to rule. So there's the glorification of man. Okay, now we go on and there's a two quotes here that I want you to uh, look at. In fact, I want you to, I'm going to um, give you three quotes. Two on page 115. One is by Jockey Lule, and I was tired when I typed this. His name is not E-U-L-L-U-L, -L -L -L. it's E, forget the first U, it shouldn't be there. It's E-E-L-L-U-L. Uh, -L -L says, from the beginning, man worked desperately God will release man's setting. But in his new world, one of man's desires will not be satisfied. The desire for the absence of God. Man wanted to build a city from which God would be absent, but he never managed. God will make for him the perfect city, which will be all in all. Now, uh, I, I just skip um, the quote on page 115. I want to take you over to another quote that's so powerful by C.S. Lewis. I've always been impressed with this. And down bottom of page 117, if you will. You turn there. It is a serious thing to live in a society. This is so neat to think of when you think of people, and particularly obnoxious people, uh, the people that give you a, a hard time, and you're having a hard time with them. Uh, that's when this particular quote, I think, means most. 
when you're dealing with difficult people. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom, we with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippant merriment. Next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, that's his Anglican background, you na your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ very latat the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. But I love Lewis's point when he, up in the early part there, that potential gods and goddesses. That captures what we're talking about, a man glorified ultimately in the immortal state. Okay, going back then to, to our position. Page 116, the glorification of nature. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 that we read started with a new environment for man. It says, a new heavens and a new earth. And you'll notice that they, they are similar, this new heavens and new earth. It's not heaven. See, this is one of the things we have to be careful of. We can get ourselves thinking like the pagan Greeks if we're not careful. By constantly talking about heaven like we're a sort of a fairies that float around in air. That's heaven. That's not the ultimate state. We may die and be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, so there's an interim existence there between death and resurrection. Yes, there's interim existence. But that interim existence is not the ultimate final state of affairs. In the final state of affairs, Revelation 21:1 says there's a new heavens and a new earth. We're used to living in the heavens and the earth. We're used to seeing stars. We're used to walking around with rocks, trees, vegetation. That happens in the new heavens and the new earth. How? I don't know. But it's there. So, the point is that these natural things around us are there by God's design 
and will forever be there by God's design. Remember, the new heavens and the new earth is, is, is to the old heavens and the old earth like the resurrection body is to our mortal bodies. There is a correspondence. So this heaven that we're talking about, we must be careful. It's not heaven as such. It's the heaven and earth. There's a new earth as well as a new heaven. There's grass to grow. There are trees to... Look, look at the, going back to Revelation 21, think of the, what we see there. In Revelation chapter 22, I believe, it talks again in verse 5, There shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of a light or a lamp or light of the sun, so it's repeated, because the Lord shall illuminate them and they shall reign forever and ever. Um, that's really not... Uh, oh, in verse 2. There we go. In verse 2... On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There you have, a, for, what was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Remember that? It was so healing that God got man out of there. Why? Because it would have given us eternal life as a fallen creature. He doesn't want he didn't want Adam and Eve to be to go through the as it were the resurrection and damnation right there in the garden and free get frozen in to a perpetual existence in sin. He wanted a chance for redemption. So here in verse two it's talking about water, it's talking about streets, it's talking about trees, it's talking about fruit on the trees. Did Jesus eat in his resurrection body? Yeah. Not only did he eat, he uh, cooked some dinner for the guys, had a party. So you can't think of the resurrection body in such esoteric, super hyper-spiritual ways. And I, what it does for me in my thinking is when I look out and I see plants and I see physical reality, I see different kind of rocks in the sky and the clouds, I think they'll be here forever in some shape or form. This environment we live in, the good parts of it, will live forever. It's hard for us sometimes. We see the storms, we see the disease, we see the famine, we see the drought. And so it's hard for us to separate from this physical environment the good stuff from the bad stuff. But the Bible says this has good stuff in it. And that's going to go on forever and ever. He's not going to do away with matter. When we start thinking that way, we get into Gnosticism and the Greek way of thinking, that these bodies are evil. These bodies aren't evil. They're fallen bodies, but the body before the fall wasn't evil. Adam and Eve didn't have evil bodies. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't have an evil body. Our bodies are evil, but that's because they share the fall. But that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because our bodies are fallen doesn't mean all bodies have to be fallen. No. Well, it's the same with nature out there. Nature, because it's fallen, it groans, Romans 8 says, it groans, waiting for our redemption. It's still going to be there. It isn't done away with. So, we've talked about tonight the doctrine of God's glorification, man's glorification, and nature's glorification. And that's the... that's. The biblical event of the future. We have not. We don't have that much text to go on, but that's the important highlights of it. Next week we're going to deal with how to apply this doctrine of uh, glorification uh, on page 117, 118.
Um, we'll close the class now, and then we'll, have, we'll take a break and have some Q&A. Father, thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you are bringing history to an orderly conclusion. In spite of all the chaos, the suffering, the shocking things that go on in this universe, there is one coming in which we will feel completely and 100% at home and in an environment for which we were really designed. That it actually is a paradise on earth. And we thank you that you have this in mind. We thank you that you offer us an entree to that new universe through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We can uh, think through some of maybe some of the stuff that uh, we covered tonight. Um, what we're dealing with now in the doctrine of glorification is material that you really have to mine from very few scriptures. But it's important because it gives us the future picture. It gives us the, a little bit about the goal of where things are moving. And um, it, the way to think about a lot of it is to contrast it in your head with what the world presents as a goal. And if you start asking yourself that question, start saying, okay, that's what the Bible says is our future. Now, what does the secular world say is our future? And you start asking that question and think about it, they're not saying too much. It's relatively a trivial answer, if ever given. And the only secular philosophy that had a vision of the future is communism. And that's why a lot of students, the ideals, would die for communism. This is why the V Cong in, in Vietnam did what they did. Why they got the strength from to endure. I mean, gosh, you know, we carpet bombed them with B-52s, dropping thousand-pound bombs that would rupture your insides if you were anywhere near half a mile from the burst of the bomb, and blow out your eardrums if you were in the mile of it. And these people endured carpet bombing and everything else. And it was because they they were well taught. Uh, I've read the. Um, the National Security Agency's interrogations of the Viet Cong and Vietnamese prisoners in, in the war. And they said these kids are 17, 18, 19 years old, and they were not just parroting communism. They had learned it so well, they could think it. Quite of an indictment about educational systems. But that's why they were able to see it. it, it, it people who have an eschatology, a self-conscious eschatology, are unstoppable. And that's why we should be unstoppable and really very, very tenacious and persistent people. Because we have a defined eschatology. We know where we're going. We know where history is going. And we know that, that the Lord has the final say. So no matter what happens, you know, we're not intimidated. A good, powerful eschatology keeps you from being intimidated by the world. Because you know they're losers. In the final analysis, every person who is not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ is an eternal loser. So why be intimidated by losers? What's the eschatology of communism? The eschatology of communism was a supposedly classless society where you would have prosperity in, in a classless environment. And the irony is that communism historically produced a very powerful totalitarianism everywhere it went. 
And the irony is it's exactly opposite to what its eschatology called for. Communism originally got its eschatology, by the way, from the Bible. You know how it did it? As a scholar, a Jewish scholar named Norman Cohen, who wrote a book, and I forgot the name of it, it was written in the 50s, I believe. And he traced the communist eschatology, the communist idea of the future, this, this goal of a perfect society. He traced it, of all places, there's two lines. One goes back to Hegel, because Marx philosophically followed Hegel. But Hegel wrote a book called, uh, or he wrote an essay, I think, something about the fourth kingdom or something like that. Now, immediately that language should gel. Fourth kingdom? Where have I heard that before? And Hegel got it from the book of Daniel. So it's an interesting trip. It went from the Bible to Daniel to Hegel to Marx. The other interesting thing is that Marx was also in Germany where there was a radical radicalism of peasants who were basically coming out of Reformation theology in a, in a like a post, post-millennial view. And um, there were some radical cults in Germany. And somehow he was a socialist. I forgot the whole linkage. But the big idea is that there was lots of roots that the only secular eschatology that had any power to it was a ripoff from the scriptures. That's what's so interesting. Because apart from the scriptures, there's no hope for the future. Carl Sagan can tell all he wants to about the passage of time. But that's all he's got is the passage of time. Hoping that something, you know, the probabilities are going to favor something pops up good after a while and give it a million tries. what happened, you're right, you're absolutely right, George, uh, and that's why a strong eschatology in the part of unbelief has been such a rare thing. I think the explanation of why in communism it, it latched on to a lot of people is that deep down inside, the most ardent atheist or communist is still made in God's image. And they may not be able to articulate why they think this way. But I think it's, it's the strong call of their very being that says that there's got to be something better. And if we have to tear down and overthrow, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. See, it's the, it's the reaction against, what do we say between the fall and the, and the, and the judgment? What's, is the universe normal or abnormal? It's abnormal. Why do we cry over someone who's died? Why, why is there the pain over something that we die? If that's part of our normal existence, why are we bothered by it? But we are. We never get, I don't think you ever get used to uh, 
looking at death. I don't think a doctor ever gets used to that. But it's because we're not made for this world. So I say that the answer to your question is, is that the creation of the image of God in their hearts got mixed up with a false idea. And it's tangled up like this. And they can't separate it. It may, it may even be more strange than that, George. It may be that Satan himself is deluded enough to think he has a fighting chance. Why does he try so hard? If he were really convinced that he, could, that he was a loser, why, what makes him keep on going? unless it's to stave off what he thinks is inevitable. But the fact is that he's working awfully hard. So the, the uh, endeavors of Satan seem to argue that he still thinks he has a chance. So what we have here, if that's the case, then we have the most brilliant creature who has ever been made, the most brilliant creature that has ever been made, also most deceived. And then the conclusion is that intelligence doesn't save you, if that's true. Because all intelligence does is when you're, per when you're perverted and deceived, you really are a fascinating work of art. Because you're so consistently deceived and so seriously perverted that you really are a case. Of what? Mm -hmm. Oh, how fascinating in this day of uh, Columbine's anniversary. Reality, but at least that's the philosophy that 
That's kind of interesting because it's almost like an intellectual ver per, uh, version of reincarnation. Kind of. Where he would not like reincarnation as a physical thing, but yet that's sort of a philosophy he's developed. I, I've been, it's been years since I've read Nietzsche, so I'm completely cold on his, on, on his, his writings. I just remember that I think he was the origin of the concept of the Superman. In Western culture, and that I also remember reading how some of the the intellectuals that helped along Nazism in Germany were infatuated with Nietzsche. Did you ever study Nietzsche? Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so you mean the communist who who gives his life? He's giving it for the future of his own society. Progeny. Well. But what you meant, what you meant, George, by participatory, though, was you as an individual. As an individual. Yeah. Yeah, it's a perversion of sacrifice. Right. And that's why you see these dedication pe dedicated people, uh, historically, the, the students that give their lives for communism. You wonder, what is going on here? And they actually had a lot more dedication than people who were the anti-communists. Because a secular anti-communist doesn't have a much of a platform to stand on. See, see, the ultimate, the ultimate 
thing to think about here is uh, when we talk about the context of life, you just think we have the word environment today, okay? Let's just use that word, sake of argument. Who controls the environment? The ultimate environment, the eternal long-range environment. What does that environment look like? What are its principles? What are its, its design? What are its teleos, its goal? And, and when you start asking that ultimate environment question, we're back again to the fact of Hebrews' idea that the things which we see did not come out of the things which appear. It comes out of the Word of God. So there's a design there, but it's coming from outside of man. And God controls the environment. God, the environment didn't get out of control because Adam and Eve fell. The environment disintegrated, but under whose curse? Who cursed the environment into it? It was God who cursed it. So even the decay pattern, as a result of the sin itself, is a design of God. And he's in control of that. So that, that's encouraging to know that that environment will one day be catastrophically and miraculously transformed. That's the message of Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, I know you've gone through this. I think you've gone through this before. But don't ask me. I want to get beat up tonight. So, uh, now, who's going to beat you up, George? Uh, now, who, <laughs> we were talking about this during the prayer, so oh. Oh. You can sit over there. <laughs> we have an exit out the back. So, uh, what is the sequence of, of uh, Lucifer's fall versus fall of man? And wrap that into the issue of Genesis 1 with the separation of light and darkness prior to mm -hmm. the creation of, of uh, the uh, sun and stars. And is there, is there any thought um, theologically as the present age period between Lucifer and the fall of man and how long from the creation to the fall? Oh yeah, the, the, down through church history there have been two answers to that question. One is that the fall, the fall of the angels obviously occurred before the fall of man because Satan was, was the tempter. So we know that the angels had to fall before man. The question is, when did that fall take place? Did it take place prior to the creation of the present universe? Or did it take place after the creation of Adam prior to the fall? A gap, by the way, which we don't know how long that is. I mean, we've got it bracketed, but we don't know exactly. Um, and, I mean, within orthodox scholarship, there's two answers to the question. I, I, at one time, held to the idea of the fall being prior to the material universe. But I've come now more and more to think of it as occurring after Adam was created, probably because of it. Because if man was created to be the ultimate ruler of the universe, that means that angels aren't. And there may be a jealousy factor there. It may explain why the angels are so, uh, the fallen angels and Satan are so hateful and so resent man. Because in the, in the New Testament, 
It said, in Corinth of all places, by the way, the most screwed up church in the New Testament, um, it said, don't you know that you will judge the angels one day? You know, and that, it's pretty hard-hitting text. So the angels turn out to be uh, very interesting creatures and in where they play a role in history. But there's two ways of handling it. You can say the darkness and the, the physics of the darkness in Genesis 1 is a ramification and revelation of a fall that had occurred previously, the darkness at the beginning, the chaos, and so on. Uh, or you can say that that is a chaotic condition that was dark physically and was later seen to be a revelation of evil as a, as a teaching device. In other words, it's, it's the blackboard in which God is, is illustrating things. Why did he make a lamb like a lamb? Well, to, to show Christ. Why did he make a, a lion like a lion? To show Christ. Why did he make the darkness? To show what evil is. It's, a, it's like a, you know, a teacher has his flannel grass. So it can be that way. It can, you can think of it that way. I mean, it's not like this is some big test of orthodoxy. Where I think it becomes a test of orthodoxy is what happened in the early 1900s with the idea. In the early 1900s, because Schofield wrote his Bible, what he, he tried to do something good. I mean, Schofield was a good man. Um, the Schofield Bible, by the way, probably saved the church from a total capitulation at liberalism in the 20s and 30s, and it saved Oxford Press from bankruptcy in the middle of the Depression. People forget Oxford University Press was kept floating in the Depression by its sale of Schofield Bibles. Well, the, the Schofield Bible people at, in the 1900s tried to argue, they, they started with that, the, the angel falling before Genesis 1-2. But then what they tried to add on to that, that we object to as creationists, is they tried to say, we can compress all the ages of the universe back there. And so they shoved the Pleistocene epoch, they shoved the Paleozoic era, the Mesozoic era, and scraped it all into this gap. And then they said, we've got that taken care of. Now we can go on. Problem is, once you do that, what do you do with day four? What do you do with the flood? The flood becomes a, a trivial event because it doesn't leave any geological evidence because the geologic evidence are, is all caused by stuff before Genesis 1 2. So that's why that use of the gap for apologetic purposes I vehemently object to because I think it's a, it gives Christians a false sense that they've solved a problem they haven't really solved.
cursing. It's cursing, you know, the angels are cursing, the angels are falling, man is falling, the whole, I mean, I'm just looking at this mm-hmm. domino effect. But it all happened at that point. It would keep creation perfect. Mm-hmm. I had such a hard time trying to figure out where, the, and I always saw sin as being initially, it, at that point of man sin, not the angels sitting back here somewhere and this sort of, and then I would blame God because then I would say, now wait a minute, if you let sin creation come in and trip me up, well then it would have been Satan's fault, not my fault. You know where my thinking is going? Yeah. Do you understand? Well, here's what happens. There's a structure. Both these views have a structure. It's like we always say, you know, don't ever think of one verse in isolation because if you have one thought, it's, it's structured. And, well, no, what I'm saying is that the view that you're taking, which is just, it's a variant of the general view that Satan had to have fallen after the finish of creation, but before Adam fell, or at the same time. But, but it doesn't really make too much difference for the argument of the very good. So, what has to happen if I want to hold to, the, to a, a pre-creation fall of angels? You know, if I want to, if I want to move the fall of the angels backwards in time, then what has to happen to get around Genesis 1.31, which God says, my handiwork is very good. What I have to then say is that the handiwork that he's saying is very good is a fix-up job on what messed up. And the danger I see in doing that, it takes the whole works of Genesis 1 and makes them less than a total creation. Now, uh, good Christians will argue, well, that's okay, you can still save it by referring to John chapter 1 and other passages. All I'm saying, though, is that it seems to me that the nation Israel, who had to live in a polytheistic, mythical environment, where there were gods and goddesses of the creation all around them, it's strange that their ground document, which would have been Genesis, is picturing their God of Israel as a fixer-upper, but not as the grandiose creator of all things. It seems to me their faith would have needed a core statement that Yahweh is the God of all. And I think that you see that in Exodus 20 when God himself speaks from Sinai and he talks to the people and he says, I want you guys to take it easy on the Sabbath day because I took six days and I made all that are in the heavens and the earth. And he makes his making contingent on that Genesis 1 narrative. Well, if he did that and he's really only saying, well, I made the material universe, the problem that Israelites had was with the immaterial demonic forces in their environment. So the polemic of Exodus 20 would then be weakened. It would be a polemic only for, I, I made the material universe, I didn't make the background universe. And I don't think God, I think they would have had to have, in order to survive spiritually, their faith needed to have a universal creator of all things, including the unseen forces of darkness. And, and so that would had to have been stated clearly, and I think Genesis states it clearly. So that's, my, that's, that's a very strong argument, particularly when it, everything left the fingertips of God, it was very good. Now, the, the, where, where some people have a problem with that is if you look in Ezekiel, it looks like there's an expanse between the time I created you until evil was found in you, you know, that text about the fall of Satan. That may be a result of the fact we don't understand time properly.
because Dr. Humphreys at Sandia, uh, if you read his little book, I advise you all to get that little book that he wrote, Starlight and Time. Uh, you can get it at Christian bookstores. I hope you can get it at Christian bookstores. Um, Starlight and Time is a little book. It's, it's, it's actually a chapter out of a forthcoming big book that he's trying to write but never finishes. Um, but that book is his explanation of time problems. And he shows that if you take the Genesis narrative as telling us that the universe started with a compressed ball of matter, but unlike the Big Bang idea, it was H2O. There were only two elements in existence, hydrogen and water. And that was the ball that was created there in, in, in Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And then out of that, God created all the other elements. That's the, the land coming into existence. And the fourth day, he expanded the heavens and the earth. And he's got good exegetical reason because the Hebrew always pictures the heavens in terms of a tent. And you know, the Bedouin lie down in their tents at night and they look up. And the, the picture in the Hebrew is he took, he took this heaven and he went like this with it. He expanded it, which then... To make a long story short, because we're running out of time, um, Humphrey points out that this has enormous implications for, this, for time, because it, time seems to vary by the density of gravity. And so his argument, again, to make a long story short, is that if you had a stopwatch and you were on the Earth, standing on the planet Earth on the fourth day, and you, you clocked, the time. You would look here and when God finished his work it would be 24 hours. 12 hours day, 12 hours night. But if on the other hand you, you took the watch and you got yourself in a, in a rocket ship and you were following the edge of the universe as he expanded it and you were looking at your watch you'd find billions of years had gone by. So that on the rim of the expansion the time time's going like this. So since the angels occupy the heavens, for them, that might have been a long time. So Ezekiel, when it seems to have that long time language in there, might be genuine, because from the angelic point of view, it might have seemed to them like a long time. So there's, that, in other words, what I'm saying here is you've got to be cautious about how we understand time. There's strange things that happen. And you can prove that because clocks that are at sea level and clocks that are in a less, where gravitational constant is less, go faster. And you can prove that because you can put a clock on a mountaintop and a clock down at sea level and they do not keep the same time. So, so time is distorted that way. But wouldn't you agree that it, it seems more true to scripture that the fall of the angels must have occurred after the seven days of I take that position, yeah. Because, and I, the argument that I got, the more I thought about that, is that we've got to preserve the power and the, the size of the claim that God created the heavens and the earth. And if you don't do that, what you have is, I repaired the heavens and the earth. And uh, yes, if he repaired them, I mean, that doesn't destroy his deity, but it just kind of does something to it. It doesn't quite make him come off like he's a powerful god. So is there any, is there any indication as to how much time there might have been? From well, Adam didn't get very old. I mean, it, it, it wasn't that long between the time he was created and the time he fell. 
I don't know how long it is. I, I really haven't studied that, that matter. But obviously Adam has a finite time interval in his life. So it had to happen sometime in there. And it had to happen before the birth of his son. So you can back up your time there. So you can bracket that time. Well, our, we were way overshot. So we'll meet next week.